0: How are you feeling about the game, man? How are you doing?
1: One thirteen to one eleven, the Denver Nuggets beat the Los Angeles Lakers. This is payback for all of the problems you gave me for <laughs> the Grizzlies losing to the Lakers and me being uh flippant about the Lakers' opportunity to be the Western Conference representative. In the end, I think what I am left with is. It wouldn't have mattered who would have played the Denver Nuggets. That Denver Nuggets team was beating anybody out of the Western Conference. They have solidified themselves as a great basketball team and a rightful representative. Uh, what they did tonight, flipping that game upside down in the third quarter, is what stood out to me the most. This looked like This was going to be the Lakers win. And then the Nuggets would go back home, inevitably face a tired Davis, a tired LeBron, who had given this maximum effort as to not get humiliated in the series. And then they'd wrap it up in the gentleman's sweep coming up in a few days. But instead, they came out of that halftime locker room and won the quarter 36 to 16. And it was at that time where I was like, okay. They're not, they're not fine with just closing this thing out at <laughs> home. I was, that was super impressive yeah. tonight. Super impressive. That
0: that third quarter, you know, they outscored the Lakers 36 to 16, 20 points in the third quarter. And you know, that whole first half, LeBron is unbelievable. He has 31 points. He's flying around on defense. He only rests for the 4.3 seconds at the end of the half, but Second half, man, Nikola Jokic came out and showed, here's why I'm the two-time MVP. Here's why I average 31 points, 10 rebounds, and 8 assists in the postseason my last three years going back to the bubble year. He was absolutely extraordinary. I thought the first half Jokic was reaching a bit on defense. The Nuggets didn't seem to have the same energy they did through games one to three, but second half, he comes out looking like the guy that we saw throughout the postseason, putting in great effort on defense, leading the offense in total control that step back jumper. He hit in the fourth quarter at the end of the shot clock. Another one like early in the series. Oh my God. I mean, like there's just nothing you can do about Jokic when he's playing at that level and when he's flanked by Jamal Murray putting in the 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 buckets that he did the effort that he did Gordon and MPJ playing defending rebounding I mean up and down this Nuggets roster Malone landed on a seven-man rotation that has positioned them now to be in the NBA finals they were just straight up the better team and I'm with you Chris And They would have beaten anybody in this position in the Western Conference.
1: Well, and you talked about how the others for the Lakers had been so good throughout their run in in the playoffs thus far. And, you know, those were the guys. it, It was obviously LeBron showed up and had this remarkable game tonight. It was just throughout this series, there wasn't the... You look at what their bench gave them tonight, and I know that Thompson came off the bench and gave them some energy, but they relegated D'Angelo Russell to the bench, and he gets you four points. I mean, this is a $27 million player. And and, and that's points. as many points as, Lonnie as Tristan Walker Thompson. Right. And, and Lonnie Walker plays six minutes in the whole game and gets you two points. And so this was – uh, a LeBron Davis operation with their season on but the line. It and wasn't even this was
0: Chris. It wasn't even an AD operation though. 86 for 15 from the night. He had a soft first three quarters. It wasn't really until his final stint in the fourth right. quarter that you felt 80 really made a true imprint on the game. I mean this, this is a lot like yep. early in that Lakers Warriors series where LeBron had a, a great game. And the rest of the team was passive tonight was the same thing. Yep. Nobody else really did much of anything I mean, Austin Reeves, again, only 11 shots. I, I still point to that and think to myself, how does Schroeder end up with more shots? How does Rui Hachimura end up with more? Austin Reeves throughout this entire postseason and particularly in this series, I know he's a second year undrafted guy, but he's been your one of your best offensive presences in the half court. And I just don't think the ball found him enough in this series, especially in games three and four. Welcome back to Beyond the Art. The Miami Heat are up 3-0 on the Boston Celtics on the verge of going to the NBA finals with what will be the one of the best eight-seed stories we ever seen. They could only be the second eight-seed in NBA history to make the NBA finals. The fact they were down double digits in their second playing game, and now they're here, will always blow my mind forever, no matter what happens in the next round. They still get one more to win. But the Celtics are down 3-0 unless they pull an 0-4 Red Sox, which is not going to happen here. They don't have that heart to do that. But unless they do that, the Celtics are going to lose and they're going to enter an off season with a lot of questions, especially given the way they've lost this series and how they got here, struggling to get through the Hawks in the first round, a seven game series against the Sixers team that could also implode this off season. And now for Boston, I think there's three key things that come to mind that need to change for them this off season. First up, The Celtics need a new head coach. Joe Mazzola, rookie head coach, going against Eric Spolstra, a major mismatch. His lack of adjustments, the iffy feel with timeouts, the poor rotations, all of it's been problematic for him throughout the postseason. I feel like the biggest one in this series against Miami are the two big lineups. It was pretty apparent early on that going with a lone big man, Al Horford, or Rob Williams better set up the Celtics for success on the offensive end, better spacing, better verticality with with Robert Williams, and also the length on defense that Williams provided compared to some of these smaller lineups that he was utilizing out there. Too many switches on Jimmy Butler. How many times did we see Butler just Pick on Derek White. Why are they giving up these switches so easily? Why play Peyton Pritchard even for a moment in game two ahead of Grant Williams? I know Williams had his own problems in game three. He poked the bear, yada, yada, but at least he presented some size and versatility for Boston. But this really stems back to the start of the year with the Celtics. Their defense was not at the level that it was last season. Part of that is because Robert Williams was more of a, a B-level guy instead of an A-level guy that we saw last year. He suffered through some injuries that set him back. But mostly I feel like they just didn't have these secondary options or third options to turn to on their defense. Think about Miami. We've seen Miami go to zone. We've seen them bring Bam Adebayo up with switches or up to touch with defensive coverages. We've seen him drop. We've seen them help hard off of certain players. We've seen them stick close to shooters. Miami has shape-shifted throughout the postseason, depending on the matchup, whereas Boston has kind of just stuck to what's worked for them, and that's a failure on the coaching staff to install these other options for them, and that's true also on offense. They became stagnant predictable, this driving kick, heavy three-point offense. It reminds me of that 0-for-27 Rockets team where you knew it was coming, even with Jason Tatum. I mean, he used to be taking way too many deep mid-range jump shots, and now he's gotten to the point he's not taking enough. He wasn't able to find a happy medium, and I thought that was reflective of the entire Celtics roster. And he kind of brought it back, this series against Miami, but it's too little, too late for Tatum and the Celtics offense that just feels... Predictable the way they just kind of moved the ball around the perimeter without other ways to generate offense in the half court. And I mean, look, you, you can't entirely blame. Joe Mazzulla here. He shouldn't even be in this position. He was a second row assistant last year. Imeo Odoka, when his situation fell apart. Will Hardy, the lead assistant with the Celtics last year, had already been hired by Utah. Damon Stoudemire they passed over him for Missoula. You can question that decision but Brad Stevens went with the guy that he felt like was more respected by the Celtics players in that locker room. It's just he's too young. He's just not ready for this situation and I think there's a chance maybe someday he could be good But just like with veteran teams, they can't always wait for inexperienced players. We see that with the Warriors with their two timelines. Just like that's the case for those veteran teams, the Celtics, they have finals aspirations, and they also can't wait for an inexperienced coach to figure it out. So. For Boston, they're in this situation now with a rookie head coach. He really blew it at the end, and there's a lot of veteran head coaches out in the market. Monty Williams, Nick Nurse, Kenny Atkinson, even Brad Stevens himself stepping down from the front office. All of those guys, they're upgrades. They present this veteran experience that this Celtics team needs. And and I think it's on Celtics owner, Wick Rosbeck. This is a, a decision that the ownership crew has to make, not Brad Stevens. Wick needs to get in on this decision that Joe's going to go. And that's step one for Boston here, but it's not all his fault. This is the third head coach that the Boston Celtics have fallen short with. It happened with Brad Stevens. It happened with Odoka in the finals. It's happened with Missoula. And this is a Celtics team that had chemistry issues in the past. They got through it. They got better. But I've had a source tell me in the past week that this Celtics team feels like a group that's tired of fake liking each other. They've been around each other forever. They've been through it before. But I I think it's at the point now, especially given the way that they've lost this series or will lose this series against the Heat, that they got to shake things up they got to shake it up on different levels, which brings us to Jason Tatum. He's too passive. He feels like more of a 1B, not a 1A. We saw it in the finals last year against the Warriors. We're seeing it again right now against the Miami Heat. How he's not taking these shots under the fourth quarter blows my mind. Jalen Brown lacks dribbling skills at an elite level. He lacks leadership. And this brings into the question just really what does it mean? What level can you reach if you have two wings that are your lead ball handlers. We see this with the LA Clippers, with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. They've reached peaks in the past. And now for the Celtics, they got Tatum, who I love. I think Tatum, is maybe he's a 1B. I still think he's a great player. But then you have Jalen Brown. Five years, $295 million contract coming up, which brings me to my second step you can't pay Jalen Brown that money. You can't have Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown getting nine figures per year against your salary cap, especially given the new collective bargaining restrictions that are about to come up for teams that enter the first and second apron. So you got to trade Jalen Brown this offseason to a team that is willing to extend him, and the number one potential target on my mind is Damian Lillard. Damian Lillard, he presents the leadership, that Boston needs, the veteran leadership in that locker room, a guy who can help you out, and the on-court leadership with his shot creation and reliability. Dame, we've seen him excel in the postseason and big clutch moments time and time and time again throughout his career. That's why they call it Dame time. With him, he's the type of guy that he helps you there, and he can settle your offense when necessary. He can play off-ball when necessary. Imagine him coming off of pinned down screens and handoffs with Al Horford when Tatum running the offense. They can They could have just better balance if they can go get Dame. The question is, would Portland even want Jalen Brown? He's only got the one year left. Would they be willing to actually trade for him with Jalen potentially not willing to re-sign immediately? They would need assurances there or a deal would have to be a three-way. And besides, Portland, they have the number three pick in the draft. They're at least first going to look around and try to find ways to build without moving Dame and try to make it work with him. But if that doesn't happen... Boston should go hard after Dame. And if he's not available, that limits your options all of a sudden. I'd give the Cavs a call. Donovan Mitchell, why not? You know, I know they just got him last offseason, but the Cavs need more balance. They need some wings. Maybe they would want to split up Mitchell and Garland for a big-time offer for Jalen Brown. They probably don't do it, though. That's wishful thinking. I'd, the, my, my, my miracle trade idea, the the team you call out, even though they probably hang up or just ignore you, give the Mavs a call. Gives the Mavs a call. Ask about Luka. Offer Jalen Brown, Robert Williams, Marcus Smart, all your future first and all your future pick swaps. Give it a try. They probably say no, but it's worth a try. I don't think it's that time for Dallas yet, but you might as well go for it. Other than that, this is the tough part with Jalen Brown. Who else? Kawhi Leonard? Paul George, that puts you into the same situation with an older, injury-prone player. Chris Paul, in theory, he helps solve some of your issues as a ball-handling presence for your team, but he's older, he's injury-prone, and who knows what he does to your locker room as well. The only other name that comes to mind is Tatum's old friend, Bradley Beal, but I wouldn't like trading Brown for Beal. Beal is super pricey, he's never won anything, he's an iffy defender, he's nowhere near his all-star form for now two straight seasons now. But Beal still, like he the shot creation that he brings, the off-ball shooting, he does bring me to my third step for the Celtics here, and and that's what can you get from Marcus Smart. If you could get a Bradley Beal for, say, Marcus Smart with Malcolm Brogdon or Derek White, plus picks, whatever necessary, then that's a whole different conversation if you can get Beal for that. So that's the type of deal I'd be going for for Smart, because as much as I... I've always loved Marcus Smart. Marcus Smart is, to me, one of those players I've always felt is going to win championships, is going to put your team in a position to win those big games and big moments, but I think I might've been wrong there. I know he has positive ingredients, but maybe that time has passed for smart. Um, He just is not the same level defender that he was last season when he won defensive player of the year, whether he's going through an injury that we don't know about or something else. He just doesn't seem to be that same level of defensive player that he was in his prime years. So I'd be looking to move Marcus Smart for those on-court reasons to shake it up and find better playmaking. But if you can't find that for him, maybe it's somebody like a Jeremy Grant with a sign-and-trade with Portland, a, a Kyle Kuzma type to add some spark to your offense. Maybe it's with the Clippers. They could use some playmaking. A Terrence Mann type. Chicago, maybe just give a call. Go for Alex Caruso. They just gotta shake things up here. And, and for Boston, there's a lot else to figure out. Grant Williams, are you bringing him back? What type of offer does he receive this offseason? You have free agents, and you don't have a lot of picks to make it work moving forward. They do have some, though. They have their 2024 pick that they'll be eligible to trade after the 2023 draft passes. They can move their 26 or their 27, and then they can move their 29 or their 2030, and plus they can give up pick swaps and their other years. So they have some options, not a lot. Put it all together here, the Celtics, they got to create a more diverse offense that can beat you in different ways. They got to create a defense that gets back to what they once were. And they have to do that balancing between adding an engine in their backcourt like a Damian Lord, somebody, he needs to be the priority. Surround Dame with length and versatility with Jason Tatum. To me, that's the number one move out there for them. And I get it. I understand why a Celtics fan might say, hey, This team has been to so many different conference finals. They've been through tough losses, including this one. They lost in a finals. Why would you not run it back with Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum? Most great players don't win until they turn age 27 anyway, but this is an urgent situation for the Boston Celtics, and they get to capitalize on all the good that they have built. They're close, and this is the summer to go all in. That's why they have to do it, because They're so close. It's an urgent situation for the Celtics. What will they do? A lot more to determine in the months to come. Welcome back to Beyond the Arc. We're going to talk about the NBA draft today and detail some of the tastiest pastors Mm. in this year's draft class. I want to start off here with... Anthony Black, freshman prospect from Arkansas. You think about everything we've seen throughout the NBA playoffs. you got these ball-dominant guys. They matter a lot. The guys who pound the dribble, who create offense. They're the center of the solar system for their teams. But the guys that I like watching most are those kind of connective glue pieces. They just keep the ball moving. They can run some pick and roll for you if necessary. But if they catch the ball at the left wing, they know to find that cutter at the basket. They know to swing it to the open shooter in the left corner. They know how to keep the ball moving. And the guy who comes to mind to me that fits that description probably the most in this year's draft class is Anthony Black out of Arkansas. Freshman player. He brings those skills at a high level. We saw that all freshman season for him playing with Nick Smith, another potential lottery pick. I look forward to seeing where Black goes. I hope he goes to a team like the Pacers, somebody like that, like Utah where they have good ball movement and he can fit right in and just be a guy who immediately is helping his teammates get better on the floor.
2: Yeah. I love Anthony black. I saw him at the Maui Invitational. And one thing that you noticed was the team was better when he was on ball and he was almost running point. He was playing the three, but he had Devo Davis who was the more traditional point guard. Yeah. Nick Smith, um, obviously who was a, you know, a guy who was much more heralded than he was coming into college, but In general, just that dynamic, you could see that Eric Musselman trusted him with the ball in his hands. He was able to get guys involved. The only thing that worried me sometimes, the Anthony Black, he could get a little erratic, but Mm. that just happens when you're 19 years old and you're trying to make things happen at a high level. So I like him as a passer, and I think he is a very tasty passer,
3: to put it in your terms, KOC
0: Kyle, who comes to mind to you as one of the tastiest passers in this year's draft class?
3: Back to back years, we have interesting wing handlers coming out of Santa Clara. Now, Brandon Pajimski is a kid who transferred from Illinois to get more open runway to develop and get better at Santa Clara for the Broncos. He's about six foot five, a lefty. Um, he can shoot the ball. He's he's one. Of, I'm glad that you categorized it between like uh, connectors and guys who are like defense benders with their own offense and can pass the ball. But Jimski can score the ball. He's a good shooter and he is a really creative passer. He's not ambidextrous like with the, with his live dribble passing, but he's very creative. Um, I could even see him kind of becoming one of those guys. I don't know that he'll be a first round pick. He's probably a second round pick, but he seems like somebody that's going to float in that zone where he's going to make a team, maybe a Ty Jerome level player who. Can you know sort of be come in and serve a role? Uh, where he goes from there, I mean, but he he has like a well-rounded skill set that if uh, he does work on his body and he does work on some of the things that he needs to improve on, he could
0: s- go from there. You said the second year in a row from a Santa Clara prospect, Jalen Williams rises into the lottery last year, gets taken by Oklahoma City. But you're comparing him to more of a Ty Jerome type. Yes. Jerome hasn't exactly worked out in the NBA, you know, for a lot of different reasons. But Tate, with, with him, do you think he has that type of first round upside? Do you see him as a guy who sticks in the NBA?
2: Yeah, and I think, you know, a lot of people are calling him the point pod, um, not the point god. And at the combine, he looks great. I've heard a lot of uh, rave reviews about what pajimski has been able to do. I love that he went to Santa Clara to get his own space to kind of showcase who he is as a player. It's tough to be at Illinois in general. And I mean, look, Ty Jerome and OKC was great. I thought behind Shea Gilchrist Alexander, he was a nice stable horse, you know, for them. And with the Warriors, I think he's been able to grow into his game. Maybe, you know, the point pod doesn't come out and he's dominating year one, year two, year three, like a Wimby or
3: someone of that ilk would do. But I think, you know, he's someone that can hang around a team and be a good piece for you. I tack one stat on there in the pick and roll this year, just to add to his passing acumen. If you want to if you want to speculate that he could grow on forty-two attempts, he shot almost thirty-six percent on pull-up threes mm. in college. So that's a
0: I mean, that's a pretty good number. That's the type of number that can draw a defense out when you're running that high pick and roll and forces them to potentially hedge, bring the, the the big man up to touch. And if he can drive to the basket with some of the physical limitations, that's what can, you know, make him a valuable player in half court offense. And he's got that connective field too, Yeah. where if he is playing a more limited role. Tate, who comes to mind to you as one of the tastiest passers this well, year? Well,
2: Kyle brought up Illinois, and my mind immediately went to Coleman Hawkins from Illinois, his old teammate, and uh, Hawkins, one of his greatest skills was, you know, similar to, not to compare him to Jokic, but he could start the break himself, right? He gets a rebound, and he can bring the ball up, he can init- initiate offense. I mean, he had a couple times, I mean, he had a triple-double in one sense, but he had a couple games where, you know, it just looked like he could have 15 assists, and he was the one that drove their offense at Time he was at times their best point guard. I mean, they had a lot of issues this year with Sky Clark, and you know, they had both their guys uh, ended up transferring that were their point guards in the offseason. So, Colman Hawkins, 6'10, 225. I think he has a lot of upside. I think he has a lot of basketball IQ. Um, if you Google him, the American saxophonist Coleman Hawkins may come up. But in a few years, who knows? Who knows? He might be the guy. He might be the
3: number one Coleman Hawkins. And I think it's because of his basketball. it would be a heck of an ascension if he could pull that off. <laughs> hey, yeah. you
2: never know, right? Oh, yeah, you never know. Yeah, you know
0: yeah. I mean, with that type of playmaking ability, like, he whips the ball around the floor. Absolutely. Sometimes he's infuriating, though. I can oh, see yeah. I can see why Like players transfer away from Illinois when he's, he's making mistakes up there. And Brad Underwood's <laughs> face
2: is
3: just red than the ever. The Brendan Gleeson <laughs> look-alike, yeah. <laughs> Haw- Hawkins is fun, though, because, yeah, he's like a, he's 6'10". I didn't see his exact measurements, but, like, Illinois has been kind of, like, uh, erratic, just like, there's the shake-up has been prevalent in mm-hmm. Illinois li- recently with the coaches and the players coming in and out, and he's, I think he's been kind of trying to find his way on the roster over the past few years, but he's somebody, I was telling Kevin this, that if he s- sticks with a good organization, I could see him just, like, materializing in some moment, like, having an NBA moment, because he's huge and he has a a wide-ranging skill set
0: yep it's gonna be very interesting to see the way like which players actually stick in the nba but like there's a lot of guys uh, we've talked about some of them the thompson twins jame haquez can handle a little bit play make for you city sissoko out of the g league as a forward can do that too scoot henderson of course as well a lot of good passers in this draft but we'll see which guys actually pan out in the nba kyle tate thank you for joining me today